Hello and welcome to another episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of natural building, permaculture, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have another fantastic interview for you in this session. So let's jump right on in. Have you ever struggled to find answers to permaculture and regenerative living questions in the mess of search results, forums, and blogs of questionable quality? Well, your search is now over with the treasure trove of information, interviews, and practical knowledge in the Permaculture Magazine of North America. As the first offshoot of the beloved Permaculture Magazine International out of the UK, there is now a regional edition to help strengthen permaculture knowledge throughout North America. This is one of my own favorite go-to resources for the latest information on innovation and news in the permaculture world. If you visit permaculturemag.org to sign up for your hard copy subscription today, you'll get the 25-year digital archive of Permaculture Magazine International as a free bonus. And just for listeners of The Abundant Edge, you can now receive 50% off your digital copy subscription right now by finding the discount code in the show notes for this episode. So go now to permaculturemag.org and dive deep into the local and global solutions that go beyond sustainability. So today's episode is going to be a bit unusual in that I'll be stepping over to the other side of the microphone, as my good friend and permaculture blogger Mike Verhaley, writer of the blog Permaculture Hami, asked me to do an interview with him for an article. Mike is a teacher traveler spending this year going around the world and documenting interesting sustainable designs along the way. He also writes a lot about how permaculture can be applied in unexpected ways, such as in finance, government, and business. I highly recommend that you check out his blog at permaculturehami, that's H-A-M-I, dot blogspot.com. I'll also have a link to it in the show notes of this episode on the website. Now, since he wanted to know more about natural building and natural materials, we sat down on my front porch on a beautiful Sunday afternoon and just made a fun conversation of it. In our little session, Mike and I talk about what natural building really means and why I'm so careful to include the full spectrum of materials and even waste stream products in the definition. We get into ways of creating a more healthy and regenerative living space with natural renovations in industrial homes, and I end up geeking out about everything from the intricacies of regenerative ecological design, some common myths and misconceptions about natural building, and even some really simple and actionable steps to making and applying your own clay-based plaster in your home. Now normally, I give more of an introduction and background for my guests, but since I've already introduced myself and talked about my own history back in episode 1 of this show, I'll spare you all the repetition, and anyone who's interested can always have a listen to the Abundant Edge intro episode. So here's me and Mike Verhaley talking natural building. Alright, we're talking natural building with Oliver. Uh, I have a few questions prepared, and we might as well just get to them. So, let's have a brief intro of yourself, what you do, and what inspired you to get into natural building. Yeah, well, so I have been traveling around the world uh, even before I took the initiative myself. I was born in Japan. My family and I moved around about nine times before I took off on my own, and since then I've been traveling for, at this point, about 12 years. And through all of these experiences and all of these different places that I've had the privilege of going to, one of the common themes and and interests that I found myself diving into was wanting to 
be a provider and to, you know, create things for the needs and the wants and the comfort of the people that I care about, while also respecting and even regenerating the ecology and the environment of these incredible places that I've had the pleasure of, of visiting. Hmm. And a lot of the early jobs that I had taken were, you know, pretty common practical skills and things that were easy to pick up on short notice as is kind of necessary when you're traveling around constantly. Uh, like labor jobs and stuff like that. A lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of construction. Uh, I've worked in farms, vineyards, uh, restaurant industry, and then service industry. And eventually I went back to school to be a maritime engineer. I studied in Seattle, the Seattle Maritime Academy. And even back then, I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do as a career. But the engineering training became really useful when I started to design and build my own structures. Yeah, for sure. And with the savings that I made for working with uh, two years in a maritime union, I put myself through the Cobb, Cobb, the Cobb Cottage Company's apprenticeship program. Okay. And I was the first of their apprentices to do most of my apprenticeship outside of their site in Coquille, Oregon. So that's like your first introduction to um, people that are really focused on natural building? Yes, for sure. Um, I did that before the first time that I came to Guatemala, which is about five years ago now. And my first workshop was done with Betty Seaman down in Southern California, and that was a one-month intro to Cobb workshop where we did actually a Cobb structure surrounding a yurt. Quite a unique way to to get diving into that. That sounds sweet. Yeah, and from there I did an, uh, an advanced workshop with the Cobb Cottage Company on their site and then went around and studied with a couple of other teachers, uh, including um, Carol Cruz in Taos, where we really focused on earth and plasters and natural finishes. Mm. And that's really where like my love of doing all the finished work with natural materials really came in yeah, wow. because that's one of those things that you don't have to have a natural building to apply. Uh-huh. You can have a conventional house. You can live in an apartment or a condo uh-huh. and you can apply clay plasters to your walls. You can use clay based paints or, or natural paints and, you know, really transform the interior of a structure, not only aesthetically, but also through the quality of air purification and, there are tons, numerous other benefits that I go over in some of the articles on my website about the things that you can achieve just with simple finishes with natural materials. Uh, that's interesting. And that sounds like something that's accessible to anybody. It really anywhere. is. Yeah. It really is. And that's why, you know, I include that in a lot of the workshops that I do. There's major portions on specifically uh, finishes and plasters because beginners can do it. People who don't own their houses can do it. People who don't have the energy or the budget to create a whole new structure can mm-hmm. add these components to any building. Awesome. Uh, it's probably the most approachable part and one of the aspects that you can implement for the largest change of quality of health in an indoor space okay. for the least amount of input, especially in money. That sounds super interesting and... Maybe we can get into that in more detail. For sure. Yeah, later. But yeah, so that's a little bit about how I got into natural building myself. It came along with studying permaculture as well. 
the two things go hand in hand and there's a ton of crossover in the two worlds and and the things that they aspire to do there's many natural builders who also do permaculture design like i do there's a lot of permaculture designers who dabble in natural building and kind of the combination of the two is how i based the services of my own company on yeah well for me permaculture isn't any one specific thing it's almost anything in this world whether it's a business or uh, a school or a way of life or a design and it's it's just taking that thing and putting it through a set of, of principles absolutely and um, if it if it matches up with enough of those principles then yeah I think you can say fairly enough that it is a permaculture design so I mean I know for myself as much as I use the gardening advice and, you know, the application of things like swales and whatnot in the designs that I do for mm. clients, I definitely regard it more as um, sort of a, a lens or perspective through which you view other things yeah. and a criteria that you aspire to when you're designing or when you're implementing a new system. Yeah. And it really gives you a framework to inform and like I said, aspire to achieve something that is really in harmony that not only reaches a level of sustainability but goes beyond to regenerate the ecosystem or even the project and the lifestyle of the people that you're working with or working for. Okay, so do you want to go over some of the principles of natural building? So there aren't really any set principles, but these are the ones that I use to inform my designs and my projects the most. Uh -huh. And, you know, there may be a lot of differences among other natural builders, but these have served me really well so far. And that is that you are looking to work as much as possible with minimally processed and local materials. Uh -huh. Now, this is going to change drastically based on where you are. The local ecology, local ecosystem. Of course. Um, even, I, like, I, I've the assessed... The geography. In, yeah, the geography, the climate, the microclimate mm. can vary tremendously even between plots where neighbors are. Mm. Um, you don't find it quite as much in rural areas, but especially in urban areas, the factors that you have to work with in design and also what materials are available to you can vary extremely even in very close proximity right. and always the first thing that I do when looking into how I'm going to approach a project is to assess what resources and what criteria I have to work with in the space but also based on the needs of my clients so uh, I'll give an example of where we are right now so we're in the valley of Sununa uh -huh. in the mountains heading down to Lake Atitlan and I've worked for a lot of clients around here what you tend to get is very rocky sandy soil uh -huh. here in the base and in the um, sort of the floodplain of the river yeah whereas as soon as you start going up the slopes you can actually find though it's still fairly rocky you find much more clay soil yeah and so those people who have land down in the valley are usually struggling to find clay soil on their site to use for things like wattle and daub or adobe or cob. But they have in abundance the sand and the stone that you need 
to make really good foundations. Mm-hmm. Whereas those just up the hill, all of a sudden, you know, they've got the best clay soil that you could hope for to make these mixes, mm. but they need to source their stone or their sand from, from off-site. Luckily, we have so many different resources within walking distance. Mm-hmm. So to source just from this very small local town is like we're spoiled for choice. There's, there's different types of wood. The lumber mills are not terribly far off. There's white pumice sand and lime kilns that aren't terribly far from here too. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you define as not terribly far? Uh, an hour or so? Yeah, I'd say about an hour's drive around. Yeah. Um, almost anything that we can't get that we really need mm. is within that distance. Um, obviously we do use some cement and we do use some rebar mostly because of the seismic factors that we have to work with here. We're in a very earthquake prone zone. Mm -hmm. And so we really need to beef up our foundations and the engineering that is required to make sure that the structures remain safe. But we, we keep that to a minimum and we try and use as many natural materials to achieve those safety requirements as possible. Cool. So obviously this is just one example. Um, I've worked in, say, West Africa where there's almost no wood to be had. And so the wood that we did import was probably the least sustainable of the things that we brought in. So we tried to keep that to a minimum as well. But we were spoiled for choice for uh, sand and clay soil, which was everywhere in our semi-arid uh, or semi-desert environment. And Where was that? That was in Senegal. Cool. Yeah, just south of Dakar. Nice. Uh, similar environment when I was in the Philippines. We were closer down to the coast, not quite as high in elevation as we are here. And had, of course, a lot of clay soil. Bamboo access was not of the quality that you would really want to build as far as like trusses and beams. Uh But there was a lot of local lumber. You know, sometimes it can be hard to see if it's sourced sustainably, but it was, you know, still a local resource. Uh, We also definitely try and use as much recycled or salvaged material as possible. And this is something that my good friend uh, Donkey, he goes by the name Donkey, but Kirk Mobert, who runs Sundog Builders in California, I really like how he takes a perspective of natural building in an urban environment can include glass and steel and concrete and all these other things because that is what you have in abundance in your environment. Exactly. And if you're savvy enough to figure out how to redirect it from a waste stream Mm -hmm. to... You know, take advantage of waste products, recycling and repurposing materials that are all around you. That's the equivalent of natural building if that's what your environment is. And by diverting it away from a landfill, you're doing almost as much environmental good as if, you know, it hadn't really been created in the first place because it's not taking up waste space and, you know, degrading in a way that's that's detrimental to the environment. They say like... In the permaculture principles is, you know, number six is produce no waste. You say waste is an unused output of a system. Exactly. So if you're redirecting those outputs and giving them new life in a useful way, even if you're not using those resources the way they had been intended, yeah. maybe if you're using, um, you know, two windows put together as a door or um, refabricating some old metal and cleaning it up and 
you know, using it for something entirely different than it had originally been fabricated yeah, that, for. That stuff's in vogue. Exactly. Yeah. And, and for good reason, because mm-hmm. especially in overconsumptive societies like the States where I come from, there's so much of it. <laughs> it's incredible how much it. you can get for free just because, you know, there are some detrimental regulations and bad practices and habits yeah. that that throw away perfectly good things. Yeah, mm-hmm. especially if you're doing something a little more smaller scale and you're around uh, big city environments that are throwing up huge condos, like just the amount of waste I'm sure they have lying around. It's Absolutely. Incredible. You got to know a guy. Back, yeah, and to get back a little bit to <laughs> the original back. question of it being like, what are the principles of natural building? You do the best with what you have. And um, there was a situation, which I think I mentioned on another podcast, but there was a a natural builder actually from around here. I I wasn't at the conference, but a friend of mine went and came back and told me that there was a guy who was just all about super adobe. And he was giving a presentation on super adobe and talking about the land that he had bought around here. And he's just like, I just could not find any clay soil and I'm really struggling to do my super adobe. Uh The soil is just too rocky. And immediately the light goes off in my head because I've been trained with many different materials instead of just one, which I had intended to just learn cob in the beginning. But as I started to learn and study with more teachers, they really encouraged me to study other natural building materials. And as a result, as soon as I hear a statement like that, you know, the, the soil is too rocky to make my super adobe, the first thing I think is, well, use the stone, silly. <laughs> like, if you have this abundant resource where you are, don't look at it through the lens of, I came here to do this one thing, and so the land must conform to my agenda. And that's really something that I think has set me apart a little bit Um, Though there are certainly others who work with hybrid structures and and are very good at looking at the resources where they are. But it's something that I push to all my students, to all my clients, that, you know, maybe you came here with an idea of what you wanted to do or an agenda of what Mm -hmm. type of structure that you had in mind. But I would always encourage you to, before going on with those ideas, see what your resources are, see what your limitations are, Mm -hmm. and build based on those. Look at what the locals use. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got to be adaptable. Local communities, especially um, less industrialized or modernized ones, much like where we're living now, are a great indication of what is the easiest, strongest, and most available ways of building. Yeah. Because they've worked with far less resources and have longstanding traditions that are adapted to their place and, and their time. Okay, so those sound like some nice benefits of natural building it's cheaper easier more local well so i've written a lot about this it doesn't have to be it can be more expensive it can be more difficult (laughs) i mean it should always be more local Mm. but it's important to take these things into account and this is where a lot of people get into natural building and get confused so I'll give the example of Cobb because most people in natural building or have heard of it are familiar with Cobb. Cobb obviously is the mixture of sand, clay soil, and straw and built up in monolithic forms. Unlike adobe, it's not made into, into bricks first. And okay. people think, okay, those, 
uh, those materials are very readily available. They're very easy to mix. And so inherently, this will be a cheaper structure and it'll be easier to do. But what they forget about is the amount of labor that is required to build a wall system. <laughs> the reason why those high-rise condos and those big development blocks of McMansions go up so fast is because they've figured out a system where all the portions of assembly are mechanized or they're super standardized. Mm. And so it's really easy to slap up a whole bunch of stick framing, a bunch of stud framing, and just cover it with sheetrock and put a roof on it and put some paint on it. It's done. Mm. Uh, obviously, there's more to it than that. But like, if you're doing a cob house and you're not mixing it, for example, with machinery like a backhoe or a tractor, mm. which you definitely can do, then you're doing it by foot. And that's an incredible amount of labor. As someone who has built a one and a half story small house, mm. it took me about five months mostly just to mix the walls. Wow. And that, obviously that is just me working by myself is probably the most inefficient way you could ever do that. <sighs> Sounds like you don't forget it if you've done it once. No, you, you definitely don't. And you definitely get to a point in the mixture or in the process where there is just no frills. Mm. You're doing no extra movements that are required to get the result you want, right? Mm. Um, and so when the labor goes up, obviously, the price goes up too. Mm. And in many cases, especially in the West or in, in overdeveloped countries, Labor is one of your most expensive uh, costs of doing any sort of project. Definitely. And so if you are paying people, which in one form or another you should be, to mix your wall structure, you could easily end up with a house that costs more than a conventional one, even if your materials are nearly free, even if you found them on site. Mm -hmm. This is to say nothing if you have to truck in extra sand or extra clay soil because very large quantities are needed to make a dense monolithic wall system. Mm. And so just assuming that because it's a natural building made predominantly with natural materials does not necessarily mean that it is going to be um, more energy efficient or cheaper or uh, easier to build. So maybe the process is simple, but the amount of labor makes it difficult. Okay. Um, the rise in labor costs makes it more expensive. And if you've designed it poorly, it could be more energy consumptive than a conventional industrial house. Yeah, definitely. These things are, are, are designed, you know, the conventional houses are heavily, heavily, heavily designed for super efficiency and cost effectiveness. Well, yeah, these days they are. The new ones are. Yeah. They have to meet very stringent regulations as far as energy efficiency uh, thermal efficiency and things like that, and for good reason. And so as a result, if you've designed or used the wrong material for your site, your climate, and all those other factors, you could very easily end up spending more to heat the place mm. or to cool it. Uh, and this is something that I go into a lot in previous articles and podcasts as well, is that it's really important to know that just because it's a natural building doesn't inherently make it all these other things that people want to associate. There is um, There are design considerations, there are planning considerations, and you have to treat it like, 
like any other construction project. You may be using better, more sustainable materials, but if you drop the ball on the design or on the project planning, yeah. you could have just as inefficient a house as like, you know, some industrial thing made in the 70s. Yeah, well, just like anything. Right. It all starts with the design and putting a lot of thought into it before wasting a lot of energy. Of course. Yeah. And like I don't say this stuff to discourage people from natural building. Quite the contrary. The fact that you, you've considered your local environment and the materials that you're using ahead of time with a focus on doing good by the local ecology, the local economy, and all of those things, you're already way ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. I mean... Like we were talking about, though, these modern housing complexes and, um, you know, condos and other structures have to meet these very, very strict environmental regulations these days. It doesn't take into account the industrial processes that, in my opinion, completely undermine the attempts to achieve better efficiency and better environmental impact. Hmm. In fact, as a result, they're using more synthetic more industrially processed materials than ever before to try and achieve these high, you know, environmental and energy standards and ratings. So, you know, people talk about greenwashing, and this is a perfect example. You know, if if the industrial process that creates these materials, which are giving you maybe a higher insulative value or higher efficiency on your heating bill or your lighting bill, are still using you know noxious chemicals or really destructive environmental processes to produce those materials Mm -hmm. in my opinion it completely negates the advantages that you're going to get on the other end during the lifetime of those things especially if you know they can't biodegrade they can't be recycled yeah to me that's that's not a productive direction to go yeah that's that uh echoes a really powerful point that uh, one of my permaculture teachers made is that a lot of people think sustainable living is about providing a sustainable so-and-so source of your food and your building for yourself. But um, if your sustainable lifestyle isn't providing the people and the place around you or that are helping you, uh, a sustainable lifestyle as well, then you are not living sustainably. Exactly. And really the best that anybody can do is just try and look at as large a portion of the picture as possible. Mm. See how many of your actions, your designs, your ambitions affect other parts outside of yourself and your own um, your, your own little impact within that project. You know, mm. okay. The transportation, the industry that produces the materials, um, the eventual location where your waste might end up and every person and community who interacts with those processes. The more you take into account the larger picture of the impact of your actions, your lifestyle, your building projects, mm. the more likely that your efforts are going to go towards something positive, something regenerative, than if you just look at, okay, well, how does it affect me? How does it affect my direct neighbors? Because we live in a globalized society, even, you know, as far removed as we are here in rural Guatemala, Hmm. there's nothing that doesn't touch almost every part of the world at this point because of the trade routes that we're connected to, because of the air and the water that we all share. 
Um, and, you know, that's really something that myself, my colleagues, my company as, as a whole really make an effort to look at the largest picture possible whenever we're implementing or designing for a project. Can be intimidating. Absolutely. <laughs> but it, uh, you know, with more experience, with, uh, you know, better support team as I'm constantly trying to add, mm. it becomes more manageable. And we're starting to put in systems in place, operating systems that make these considerations automatic. Yeah. All right. Yep. That sounds great. Um, let's move on to, you know, like for people out there, people reading this or listening, like what are some of the first most basic steps one needs to take when when they're trying to implement a natural design or after they've sort of decided that that's the route they want to go? Uh, well, much like I just talked about, figure out how many of your actions, how many of your materials are going to impact a larger, you know, watershed, um, a larger economic zone. Okay. And see... You know, once you've done a little bit of that research, if that doesn't change some of your priorities, if that doesn't change some of what you consider to be needs. So would you say like, you know, sit down, put together a list of what you want to do and what you need to do it and then sort of try to match those up with what works locally what you could, what's available locally, what's in abundance locally, and maybe sort of... So it's really hard to try and think people. about all that on a single list. Uh, um, I'm, you know, very type A, very organized and, and systematized, so I make lists for everything. Uh, and, you know, as part of the reason why even I ask for help, I get help from my colleagues, from other people in my network, other people with more experience on every project that I do. And, you know, even if you're not hiring somebody else, if you're just doing this on your own, try and get as many people to help you on this project. Um, (laughs) So you got like baked cookies and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, free lunches. Not, I mean, not only will that help you in your own goals of what you want to achieve, but it's a essential part of creating community. Mm. Who wants to have a house in a community that doesn't want that house there and doesn't want them to live there? You know, you To a certain degree, no matter how much of a hermit you are, which, you know, I'm speaking as someone who's fairly on the hermit scale, um, you you never want to be so isolated from your community or your interactions with those around you that, that it breaks down the bonds that are really your biggest lifeline to having a regenerative lifestyle. Mm. Nobody can do that in isolation. It's the reason why we're a very, very social species. Um, yeah. If you have to source all your own water, grow all your own food, or kill all your own food, um, if you have to provide all of your own fuel, whether it be you know, gas or, or wood or solar, you're at a huge disadvantage if you're trying to do every single one of these things by yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why we form ourselves into communities. We're social for survival. Absolutely. But like I'm getting away from the main question being like, how do you start to plan and consider for a project? Yeah. And so I would say the very first thing you should do is identify what you're trying to accomplish with 
your project. Okay. We'll use the example of a house. Yeah. If you are trying to design and build a house for yourself, there are always going to be some inherent needs of that house. It needs to be resistant against climactic and geographical events, whether it be earthquakes or hurricanes or floods or anything that you are at risk for in your, your site and your climate. A house has to serve those functions or it doesn't work as a house, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it needs to offer a certain level of comfort. It needs to offer a certain number of amenities. And it's up to you to decide which of those are absolute necessities and how many of those are desired, how many of those are wants. Okay. So basically what I'm saying is, is come up with a list of absolute needs and then wants and be very discerning about which is which. You know, some people think that, you know, having an oven in their house is an absolute need. <laughs> well... Um, perhaps if your main income comes from baked goods, Mm -hmm. then you could consider that a need. Otherwise, it's a very high on the list want and it, you know, it'll probably make it into the design. But just know the difference because especially since so many people are attracted to natural building because they think it's so cheap. Mm. They often get derailed when they're putting all of these modern conveniences and luxuries that we get used to in, you know, a developed Western society into a natural building and all of a sudden the price skyrockets and they're confused as to, wait, how, how is natural building so much cheaper? Well, if you're still trying to live an overconsumptive, luxurious lifestyle just within a box that's made of natural materials you're going to quickly find that, you know, the difference in price turns into almost nothing, mm. you know? So, so really get a good idea of what is essential for you to have a reasonable and comfortable lifestyle and the rest of which are wants. So I got to cut out the hot tub? You, this, isn't to say, <laughs> this isn't to say you have to cut anything out. I'm just saying be discerning in the beginning, especially if you're working from a limited budget. Yeah. And make sure that once you start designing, all of those needs are accounted for before you start throwing those wants mm-hmm. in. Yeah. Um, and you are much more likely to be able to stay within your budget and come up with a plan for your building that is going to be manageable for... Um, the amount of money you have, the amount of time and labor that you have to spend on it, the amount of people who are going to be able to help you. Mm-hmm. And these are all later lists that you're going to start making once, you know, your, your project advances. But the very first thing to do is come up with that needs and wants list. Okay, good. good. So, yeah, obviously, depending on how much time you want to take, I can go into some of the other essential lists, but a lot of it starts to bleed into what we learn in permaculture. Yeah. Because as soon as you've identified your needs and wants, you really have to assess your site. And you're doing it from the exact same vantage point as a permaculture designer would be doing. And, and for anyone who's not familiar with those criteria, you're assessing, you know, obviously big picture stuff first. Um, your geography, your climate, the way that the sun hits your site, and all of these other factors that you cannot change first. Yeah. Just the inherent aspects of your site and then you start to go into more of the details where are the microclimates what are some things that you can play with that you can manipulate as a designer in order to achieve some of the things or facilitate some of the functions and the desires of your design of your project 
And, you know, this is a rabbit hole that we could go so far down. It's almost never ending the amount of variables that you could consider on any given site. And so this is where, you know, experience and uh, just constant studying has made me good at these things. Is being able to see the interactions between these system um, these system criteria, these factors that exist on a site that are either movable or immovable Mm. and how we can use the resources that are given to us on site and how much, you know, we have to import from another place in order to get desirable results that not just provide for their needs, you know, because nobody wants to live in just a, you know, a minimal little hut. If you want to have an abundant and regenerative lifestyle, you want to start putting in wants. You want to start building towards that abundance. And the better you get at learning how to, you know, read your landscape, understand your climate. Um, in natural building especially, we're looking at the, the geological, the, the plant resources that we have. And, you know, to however much detail you're willing to go into will only make your design and your planning that much more specifically tailored for what you are trying to achieve with your project. All right, yeah, good points. Uh, Observe and interact. That's the first. Absolutely, and yeah, you can definitely sum it up in, you know, these little nutshells of observe and interact. And for beginners, you'd be surprised at how far you can get with just very basic information. But without it, you're very quickly going to run into roadblocks into factors that are going to make anything you're trying to achieve that much harder. So don't skimp on the design, the planning, and the understanding phases. They're going to make everything, including staying within budget, more realistic down the line when you're actually implementing the project. That would be the main thing that I would say. Yeah, cool. Uh, We hope to get some more... A list, in fact, of resources uh, for people that want to get into natural buildings. So, sure, um, yeah, I'll put a bunch of links in the show notes for the podcast, and I'll share them with you so you can put them yeah, on this article so, as well. So, you want to share a specific design today, or you piqued my interest when you started talking about uh, natural plasters and finishes, things that people can do in their own homes right now whether they have a natural building or not well i'll be sure to give you a bunch of pictures of designs that i've done for landscapes and houses in the past yeah but let's uh let's keep it simple for now like you were saying uh we can focus on how you can put a layer of beautiful clay-based plaster on your walls okay so let's focus on interior walls because they're much easier to experiment with Uh obviously if you're putting something on an exterior wall it has to be pretty high performance or else you're going to be maintaining it or replacing it pretty often which you know if it's nearly free to get the materials and it's a chore that you enjoy which i like i love putting on plaster (laughs) it's not that bad if it you know it needs to be maintained frequently now are we talking about uh putting on a clay-based plaster plaster in almost all environments and like i'm from canada it gets pretty cold well so this is why we're focusing on interiors 
Oh, you said interiors. Yeah, so, okay. yeah, I would say, yeah if, yeah, if you're doing it for exteriors, there's a lot more criteria right. you need to meet, and you need to factor in, you know, your climate and all those things. Yeah. Interior is a much more controlled environment, and it doesn't have to be as, uh, basically as durable, uh-huh. you know? All right. So you still want a certain amount of durability. The main things that you don't want to happen on interior on an interior plaster is it for it to be brittle. So like yeah. if somebody bumps up against it, you don't want a chunk <laughs> falling off. You don't want like uh, plaster flakes flying. Exactly, and it becomes something and, uh, that you have uh, to for clean. Exactly. I get it. Exactly, okay. and you don't want it to powder. Right. So again, if something touches it or rubs up on it, you get like a powder of you know clay or some sort of pigment either rubbing off on your skin or on a utensil or so something. So where, where are we starting? What are we doing? So clay varies significantly. If you're excavating clay, for example, where we are, it's going to have a lot of different uh, properties and impurities than it might just, you know, even further up the valley. Mm-hmm. So you need to analyze your clay. Now, I've got a, I've got a blog post on how to test for clay subsoil, which I'll, I'll put a link into here. And basically, you need to figure out by, you know, first identifying a bit of clay subsoil or obviously you can buy it in bag form, usually from pottery suppliers or whatnot. And that's how you're going to get the most uniform results. But again, if you're excavating it yourself, if you want to make your own from the earth on your land, which is admirable and and very cool, (laughs) I've done it myself, um... You need to test for those impurities and the properties of that clay. Some clay will crack significantly when it dries and others won't based on like the levels of silt and other minerals that are mixed in with it. All right. So number one, test your clay subsoil. All right. And I won't go into all the different ways to do that. Um, Basically, it's just a matter of performing a number of tests. Okay. Number two. Number two, figure out what sort of aggregate you're going to be putting into it. So if you want a very, very smooth, uh, slippery, nice finished coat plaster on your walls, Mm -hmm. you're going to need to select an aggregate that's very, very fine. So we're talking like marble dust or silt or very, very finely sifted sand if you want that type of result. Now, if you want more of a textured look, you don't mind seeing the pores, some of the color differentials in types of sand then you don't have to sift or filter it nearly as fine. This is where it starts coming into aesthetics. You know, how do you, how do you want the final product to look? Okay. And all of it is just selecting these ingredients with that final result in mind. Okay. And then? Then you want to think about perhaps having a secondary binder. Now your primary binder is going to be the clay. Clay is what's holding everything together. Okay. But oftentimes clay on its own, will give you that powdering effect that I said we want to avoid in the beginning. Yeah, we don't want that. There's a number of ways to prevent it from doing that. My personal favorite is to mix up um, wheat paste, okay. which is I usually just get like the cheapest bag of white flour that I can find, and you boil water and you mix in um, the wheat paste into it, into the boiled water, making sure that you mix the whole time so it doesn't clump up. Uh-huh. And then as it cools, it forms this very thick paste. And when it dries completely, it's, you know, have you ever made, um, you know, 
bread, like dough and stuff, yeah. and you've left some on the inside yeah, of yeah. the pan, yeah. it dries to like this horrible crust that's impossible to clean off. It's kind of like uh, paper mache a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. yeah, now we're talking like paper mache. Yeah. So it when like- it dries, it dries into this very uh, tough skin. Mm. Now, it can degrade if it gets wet again, but again, this is an interior plaster, so it's not getting rained on. Okay, no water balloon bites inside? No, well, I mean, that actually sounds like enough fun that I would maintain my plaster as a result. But, yeah, um, usually if it just gets, like, splashed with water, it's not going to degrade whatsoever. I'm talking about, like, if it gets wet for hours, like if it were left in the rain, you know. Um, Okay, so you need... So that'll help to prevent... You need your clay, you need your aggregate, and a secondary binding solution. It mm-hmm. sounds like that casein wash paste. could work. Yep. Yeah. There's a milk casein. The yep. Um, I avoid that kind of stuff here because obviously wheat flour is a food source, and seeing as we're in a very poor community, I don't want to be showing people that I'm just using what they would consider food or possibly even a luxury item as something to mix in with mud. Okay, that's something to consider. But there are others. So, like, here, there's a cactus called nopal, and it's common in many parts of the world, even outside of desert regions. Like, we're not in the desert, and nopal grows fine here. Yeah, I've seen some. If you chop it up into cubes and soak it in water for about two weeks, all of the mucus from the inside of that cactus will mix in with that water. And that cactus mucus is extremely good as a binder and, and functions very similarly to that wheat paste. If you mix that in with your plaster solution, it'll often form that skin and prevent the powdering um, as, as a good secondary binder. So that's yeah. a great resource in a lot of places. There, There's a whole number of others. I go over it in, in other podcasts where we where we talk specifically about plasters and there's tons of resources online. So right. we'll, people, yeah. We'll link that up. We won't go too deep into binders. This is me nerding out because I absolutely love plasters. It's one of my favorite parts of natural building. All right. So So those are the three main components to a good quality plaster. Now, you always want to do test patches. So get those dry materials together or, you know, your binder is not a dry material and mix them in very carefully portioned ratios and do it in small amounts. So maybe start with a one to one ratio aggregate to clay and then add maybe say one cup of binder to that, mix it up and put a test patch on your wall. All right. And then do that with different ratios. Maybe you're doing a two to one ratio of clay to sand and then half a cup of binder. But obviously you need to take notes so that when you go and check after those test plasters dry, you know exactly which ratios you put in in order to be able to repeat them on a larger, on a larger scale. So do a bunch of test patches. I do this every time before I start a plaster job. You never know how your plaster is going to behave or perform until you've done these test patches. Mm-hmm. I teach this in the courses that I do. It's absolutely essential to getting a plaster that's worthwhile, that doesn't need to be removed or maintained too often. Yeah, you don't want to put the whole room together. Exactly. It's a huge amount of waste of material and time if you don't test it first. Okay. So, okay, so once you've got your test batches and you have a mixture that meets your criteria for, for what you need it to be both aesthetically and uh, performance-wise, then you can go ahead and do your whole wall. All right. Now, that's enough. That's all you need to know to put in a natural plaster. 
But we could also talk about aesthetics. So you could put in pigments, you could put in whitening, you could add certain amounts of uh, lime. Lime gives it um, will, will temper any color that's inherently in your clay and make it whiter. So if you want a brighter room, maybe putting in lime or whiting. There's a lot of products that you can buy from pottery stores. Yeah. Um, pigments you can even get from cement suppliers. They're often like oxides and rusts and stuff that are perfectly natural that are the commonly used pigments for dyeing cement. And you can buy them cheaper from cement suppliers, whereas it's the exact same product from a clay supplier. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. And then um, you can just play with it. Um, see, again, with your test patches, how the aesthetic comes out, what the texture is, how the color looks after it's dried. Yeah. Anybody who's painted a wall knows that <laughs> the color after the paint has dried is often very different from what it looks like when it's going on. Yeah, so just test and experiment and have fun with it. Like, be a mad scientist of natural plasters. So besides uh, aesthetics and the amount of fun it sounds to plaster up your walls mm-hmm. <laughs> on a weekend or something like that, There's a ton of fun. Uh, what are some of the, what are some of the health benefits like why would someone want to do this besides uh just for aesthetics sure so clay specifically has a lot of benefits when put on in a plaster form for the interior uh, quality of the air and the quality of the humidity because clay is so absorbative it will help to moderate the humidity in an interior space there are extreme examples of like clay plastered bathrooms mm-hmm. where you know how you get out of a hot shower and you've got to wipe down the mirror because of all yeah, the fog in there. Yeah. Uh, I've heard stories of that not being something that you have to do. The clay walls literally absorb up all of that vapor. Wow. And of course, after it's been absorbed, it slowly releases back into the air. So leave that door open and the moisture contained inside of your clay plasters in the bathroom will help to moderate the humidity in the rest of the space. Hmm. So if you live in a really dry climate, um, it'll help to keep your interior a little bit more moist. If you live in a damp climate, it'll help to absorb that out in order to reduce molding and, you know, other type of rot that's inherent in really um, humid climates. Um, For, you know, people who are worried about these types of things, Clay releases negatively charged ions into the air, especially when it comes into contact with water. And the reason why this is important is because all of our appliances, our electronics, our computers, all of these things are constantly releasing positively charged ions into the air. And this can inhibit our absorption of oxygen. This can, yeah, inhibit our respiratory response. And, you know, I don't know all the science behind it, but that's the main one. And the clay in the walls can help to mitigate the the balance of negative and positively charged ions in your space. It helps to make you feel more alert. So like those bracelets that baseball players wear? <laughs> I know what you're talking about, but I, I, I can never remember what they're intended to do or like how they work. Yeah. Uh, okay. That sounds, that sounds neat. I, I'm, I'm uh, reminded of some visions that I've, that I've had. I used to live in in Taiwan, where there's weeks and months with almost 100% humidity, yeah. and I could see my walls and my tile floor sweating. I almost cracked my head open just walking across the tile floors that were 
Hadn't spilled anything on there. It was just the natural sweating of the floor, and it gets nasty. Yeah, obviously those are extreme examples, but um, yeah, clay is is pretty resistant to mold on its own, better mm. than most you know industrial products that you would use. Mm-hmm. However, it will still mold at a certain point. But there are additives that you can put into your plaster if that's something like you're a high risk area like that. Mm. You can mix in borax in powdered form into your clay plaster solution and it's extremely mold and rot resistant cool so yeah even improving those qualities there's a ton of additives and you know things that you can put into your mixture to help enhance whatever property it is that you're trying to maximize in in those coverings um while we're on kind of like negative ions and what people (laughs) think is healthier for them uh no scientist so i don't really know much about yeah i don't claim it either (laughs) but um i do know that there's a growing body of research that has shown a lot of negative health effects from these sort of like prefab high chemical building materials that we use to prevent um fires fireproofing in the drywall um and to prevent mold and stuff like that like it often uses a lot of chemicals that we're finding over the course of 15 20 30 years of living in a house has some really serious negative side effects so so say if you're somebody that is living in one of those kind of buildings and that it's worried about that sort of thing uh do you think like a natural clay plaster might plaster might uh be a remedy for that uh 100 percent Yes, it will improve the air quality indoors for you, no doubt. Um, You know, obviously on a case-by-case basis will depend on just how effective it is. The thicker the plaster that you put on, the more it has of space to absorb. So that will increase uh, the benefits. But yeah, exactly what you're talking about has often been linked to the rise in, you know, respiratory and even nervous system uh, illnesses or conditions in in places with uh, prolific use of those types of materials. Yeah, and a lot of people can't can't really help where they live, you know, in right. their social economic situation. So this sounds like uh, and what you're talking about it, they're called do. VOCs, volatile organic compounds, okay. and those are what are released into the air and are you know causing so many sensitivities, negative health responses. And they're becoming more and more common in all types of indoor environments from, you know, industrial buildings all the way down to homes. And it's been shown in numerous studies. I don't, you know, have all the links right now. But the majority of people in, you know, new buildings, and by new I mean like 50 years older or less, are living in worse air quality conditions than in outdoors in most cities. Wow. And so this this is anywhere. So if you're living in a fairly new home in rural areas and you're thinking, oh, well, I live, you know, way out in the country. I must be breathing better. I must be doing uh, so much better health-wise because of the quality of the air where I live. And you're still spending most of your day indoors, say on the computer or, you know, whatever else you have to do. 
Or just say it's winter and you don't go out that often. <laughs> that happens. You're breathing in worse quality air than outdoors in the center of a city in most cases. Wow, that's scary. And it's really something that people don't don't realize. Because, you know, oftentimes you don't smell it. These types of health changes happen very gradually and it's hard to pinpoint exactly where they come from. Um, but it's a reality of most people's living environments at this point and... Obviously, plastering your walls with clay is only one of the steps that you can take. But in my opinion, it's one of the single best things that you can do. Because I don't think I, I touched on this before, but clay will actually filter the air in, in a space. Now, it's hard to, of course, gauge exactly how many toxins and impurities it can take out of your air. There are so many factors and variables that you'd have to take into account. But... My favorite example is in these old pubs in Ireland and England. Um, they used to be called brown pubs uh-huh. because over time with so many people smoking, they turned these clay plastered or lime plastered walls brown. Uh-huh. And you could take down the pictures of, you know, the pictures that had been hanging on the walls and there would be a marked different color uh-huh. behind those pictures than there were in front. For how much absorption of this, you know, people just smoking that the plasters took in. Wow. So that will give you some idea <laughs> of some of the benefits that that replastering your interior could do. Yeah. Well, I There's so many that. other things you can do with natural materials that will have a marked benefit on the health of your interior space. And that's something I'd love to talk about in more detail in another, you know, either article or podcast but we'll, we'll leave it for there for now and end up being a very long answer yeah well it looks like we got a good introduction and some nice inspiration for uh people to go out there and check out these designs for themselves so for sure let's link it up and wrap it up sounds good and yeah we'll share some of these resources and thanks for the inspiration hey thanks so much for coming by mike it's nice. a real pleasure Goomba. take care buddy So before we wrap up this show for the week, I've got some exciting news about the upcoming months. And I'm joined here now with my good friend and founder of Atitlan Organics, Shad Goodsey. Hey, buddy, what's new? Oh, man, so much is happening. First off, though, I just want to say thanks for having me, man. I really love your podcast, and I actually had a great time doing that interview back in one of the earlier episodes. Anyway, probably what's most exciting is our new collaboration between Atitlan Organics and Abundant Edge. As you know... We've been offering permaculture design courses for over six years now, and they really have become a staple here in Lake Atitlan. In particular, though, the intro to permaculture course is just an amazing way for travelers, gardeners, architects, basically anyone to fully immerse themselves in this new paradigm of permaculture design. Like, honestly, you can't take this course and still see the world the same way afterward. Man. Yeah, it's life-changing. Sure. But like I said... What I'm most excited about is that now, thanks to our collaboration, we're going to be able to offer your natural building course immediately after every one of our intro to permaculture courses. Literally, this two-week offering is like possibly the most complete package that I know of available anywhere. Basically, with these two courses alone, I think that someone should have everything they need to start their own regenerative project or just their own regenerative lifestyle. That's that's what I'm excited about, man. But uh, yeah, what about you? What's going on? 
Man, well, you know already that me and the Abundant Edge team are gearing up for a big season as well. I mean, starting in November, we'll be breaking ground on a regenerative farming demonstration site, which is, of course, right down the hill from your farm. We'll be building animal pens, a classroom, outdoor kitchens, and lounge areas connected to houses, and it's all going to be made out of natural materials. I mean, the site is going to serve as a demonstration farm for perennial and regenerative farming methods for years and years to come. And we'll even be offering courses and internship opportunities to people who want to learn for themselves about how to build with natural materials and set up their own farms. Heck yeah. That sounds amazing, man. And honestly, this is just about the best place in the world to learn all these things too. I mean, this little town of Sununa in the gorgeous tropical mountains of Guatemala, like right here on the shores of Lake Atitlan, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And on top of that, you have this traditional indigenous Mayan culture that's still rich and alive. And probably my favorite part is that we have this world international community of alternative people that are open to new ideas and really putting things into practice. I mean, within walking distance of the Bamboo Guest House, you've got loads of things going on. we got the projects that we've already talked about, but you also have yoga retreat centers. You have Charlie Rendell's Natural Bamboo Building School. You have Love Probiotics. you got Fungi Academy. And honestly, loads more alternative, blow-your-mind type stuff. I honestly just feel like this is where it's all happening. Yeah, man, it really does. And I want to get as many people as possible in on these projects, but we've got to make sure that they've got the skills first. So what do you say? Let's offer a big discount to those who sign up for both courses. I mean, all food and lodging in the amazing Bamboo Guest House is already included in the tuition. So this will be like the best deal that we've ever offered. That's a great idea. Because I mean, people can still take just one course if that's what they're into or if they can't make the full two weeks. But this will actually make the two courses more accessible to even a wider audience of people. And that way more people can get the knowledge that they need to get started doing what they want to do. So hey, to all of you listening out there, we really want passionate and driven people like you to come and be a part of the community and the ecosystem that we're building out here. So if you're ready to take the next step and really dive in, there's no better time to invest in yourself by joining us on this journey to a regenerative future. Shad, how can they get in touch with us and see the upcoming events and workshop schedule? For sure. Well, for start, they can either go to atilanorganics.com and click on the workshops tab, or they can check out abundantedge.com and click on the education tab. Either one of these will get you all the information you need for all of the courses that we're offering in the months ahead. We're really looking forward to working and collaborating with all of you inspired and enthusiastic people out there. But even if you can't make it out yourself, I'm sure you know someone in your network who would jump at the chance to get involved in this positive, regenerative, and truly life-changing projects. So this is Oliver Gaucher and Chad Goodsey inviting you to come and be a part of the regenerative future that we are building. Can't wait to see you here. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer, from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Right now, you can get a discount code for 50% off your digital subscription to the incredible Permaculture Magazine of North America, simply by finding the code under the show notes of this episode. 
Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be a conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again on next week's session.